The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Season Finale, Part 2, The Beautiful Victim Ladies and gentlemen, the contents and theories in this episode are solely a practice of hypothesis. Thus, everything considered is hypothetical and is not an accusation, a charge, or claim that anyone has actually committed any of the illegal or wrong deeds we might consider. With last episode's criminal profile, Donnie Bull took a good slug bug red to the arm, no doubt, as suddenly the case seemed so cut and dry. Donnie Bull, a round peg in a round hole. But like analyzing any great story, we should consider, ladies and gentlemen, the skillful manipulation of plot construction, point of view, dialogue, and devices used to build suspense, everywhere from the smooth parchment of great literature to the lurid words of sensational subjects of the rough wood pulp pages of true detective. From the cynical characters and stark shadows of film noir to the fantastical excitement of Hollywood, the true crime genre's long, rich history not only shows us that there is much more to true crime than penny-dreadful and blood-splattered paperbacks, but that things are not always as they appear, and more often than not, are not at all how they appear. Hence the red herring, that ornery bird that lands on a nearby branch, sings its siren song, and leads us astray under its willful spell often with real-life consequences, which are better kept at arm's length, in the pages of a book or on that silver screen, than rasping at your door at the witching hour. 
slug bug red, combined with a pre-existing unconscious bias, leaves us at this point with little choice but to self-correct, zoom out, roll back, and rerun the pre-credit opening scene. As Pulitzer Prize-winning renowned American film critic Roger Ebert once asked the very question of which we seek the answer, who is the killer? And offering a bit more insight, he stated, the movie makes it painfully obvious early on and then insists on boring us with repeated shots of another suspect. It's as if we know who the killer is, but the movie doesn't. So who had the movie made painfully obvious early on? Who else but the original suspect, David Haynes? Considering the profile, we must take note of a certain significant dichotomy. One of the most widely cited classifications of all violent serial offenders, and one that had been used when determining those 30 proposed traits we had previously weighed against the five suspects, including the Volkswagen Beetle. The dichotomy deals with so much more than modes of transportation. In its simplest terms, it is a way to categorize the differences between organized offenders and disorganized offenders. The organized offender would be described as leading an ordinary life, which is also reflected in the way he commits his crimes. Highlighting some proposed characteristics, he is claimed to be of average to high intelligence, socially competent, but more likely than a disorganized offender to have skilled employment. It is also claimed that he is apt to plan his offenses, use restraints on his victim, and bring a weapon with him to commit the murder, and take the weapon away with him from the crime scene. In contrast, the crime scene of the disorganized offender is described as reflecting an overall sense of disorder and suggests little, if any, pre-planning of the murder. The disarray present at the crime scene may include evidence such as blood, semen, fingerprints, and the murder weapon. There is minimal use of restraints, and the body is often displayed in open view. The disorganized offender is considered socially incompetent and has a below-average intelligence. According to its proponents, in general, organized offenders are hypothesized to kill after ongoing some sort of precipitating stressful event, such as financial, relationship, or employment problems. Their actions are thought to reflect a level of planning and control. The crime scene will, therefore, reflect a methodical and ordered approach. This is seen as a consequence of the organized offender being socially skilled and adept at handling interpersonal situations. Organized offenders are thus more likely to use a verbal approach with victims before violence. And all these aspects of the offender are presumed to be reflected in the crime scene. By contrast, there is the hypothesis that the disorganized offender kills opportunistically. He or she will live near the crime scene. A lack of planning before, during, or after the crime will be reflected in the offense's spontaneous style, in the crime scene's chaotic state. This mirrors the offender's social inadequacy and inability to maintain interpersonal relationships. The lack of normal, healthy social relationships increases the likelihood of sexual ignorance, as well as the potential for sexual perversions or dysfunctions as a part of the homicidal acts. The organized are careful. They often take time to clean up or remove evidence such as fingerprints, blood, bullet cartridges, or knives from the crime scene. Usually this type of offender will move or conceal the body, or in this case, set a fire. However, there is also a third category of this taxonomy, the mixed offender. This category suggests that there are those offenders who cannot be easily distinguished as organized or disorganized, but as assorted, diverse, or a mix of the two. Examples are that the attack may involve more than one offender, 
There may be unanticipated events that the offender had not planned for. The victim may resist, and the offender may escalate into a different pattern during the course of an offense or over a series of offenses. The suggestion is that in this sort of crime, although there may be some evidence of planning, there will be poor concealment of the body. The crime scene may be in great disarray, and there will be a great deal of manual violence committed against the victim. The offender may be young or involved in drugs and alcohol. So as you might be able to tell, certain pieces of evidence pointed toward one, and others may have implied the other in the Tompkins case. Those 30 traits in which Donnie took the gold resulted from the most basic summary of those disorganized traits, which resulted when the task force analyzed the crime scene and the pieces of evidence gathered therein. But we must ask, at what point did the focus shift from where the material evidence had been pointing to a mixture of inductive reasoning and unconscious bias that interfered and potentially led detectives astray? However probable a theory may be, if it is impossible, the evidence can only be bent so far. And in the case of the timeline, time is not relative to the degree where it can be twisted into a pretzel and still be expected to remain elastic to equate one's desire and willingness to attempt to defy concrete reality. Now, while we begin an argument about how organized or disorganized Donnie had been, it is clear that investigators determined the true killer of Donna Tompkins was, overall, a disorganized man and that the disorganized man was none other than the shaggy-haired furniture delivery man himself, Donnie Bull, as we are all by now thoroughly aware. So ladies and gentlemen, I ask again, if we take reality into account, if we hold a strong faith in the concept of time, believe in the importance of a timeline, particularly its invaluable significance to the investigation, and if we take into account the fact that various medical examiners had determined that Donna had to have died within an hour of her last drink, given Donna was not throwing it all to the wind and downing schnapps and cider to her heart's content in the wee hours of the morning, just before it was time to pick up that Chestnut Street ATM drop, before heading into the bank for a long day of work, that one could assume, or better yet, quantify, as the medical examiners had, the scene we know by the phone call with Rod, that Donna was drinking sometime between 9.30 and 11 p.m., and given that she had to have died within that hour of her last sip, she most likely died between midnight and 1 a.m. At that time, many witnesses stated that Donnie Bull had a solid alibi, as he was playing cards in Rochelle Hillmeyer's kitchen with his buddies, until he and David Nell, grabbing a few remaining beers at 3 a.m. or later, took a cruise around town, stopped and got some smokes, and then hung out in his driveway for a bit before Donnie left for home on that frigid night. Now, despite what happened after Donnie left Nell's, this would have been after 3 a.m. and most likely closer to 4 or 5, 3, 4, 5 hours after Donna's approximate time of death. Given how brilliantly the profile matches Donnie, there is little doubt or difficulty in understanding the power of the impulse to bend that timeline until it fit. But bent enough, that timeline would eventually snap. And by the time you reach a four or five hour discrepancy, seeing there are only so many hours in the day, literally one sixth of an entire 24 hour period, I'd say that timeline had indeed snapped. Suppose we trust the medical examiner's estimated time of death. In that case, if we count the call log that verifies Rod talked to Donna from exactly 9.35 p.m. to 9.36 p.m., 11 minutes to be exact, and if we trust that Donna was truthful about the schnapps and cider she was sipping, this leaves us with both an answer and yet another question. The answer 
it would have been impossible for Donnie, no matter how well he would have fit the killer's profile, that he could have killed Don and Justine Tompkins and still abided by the law of physics. And the question, that same old pesky one, who done it? Looking back at the profile, we see second place was Terry Haynes, and third place runner-up was David Haynes. Now, we could spend all day and night considering both of these characters as suspects, and honestly, they both seem guilty as hell, given their behaviors. One could even say the same for John. But what about Rod? Rod is the unsuspecting one here, and as counterintuitive murder is by nature, any analysis of murder should itself be counterintuitive. So let's take a moment to consider Donna's phone records. On January 4, 1993, a Monday, Donna called Rod's house at 9.41 p.m. while Rod was at work and talked to someone other than Rod. It is documented that she had spoken with Rod's roommate, Scott Roop, for 27 minutes that day. And later, at 7.49 p.m., she had a one-minute phone call again with Scott. Donna simply calling to check if Rod was home is understandable, but if you remember the very one whom Donna felt comfortable with her various personal matters when Scott had called her up at the bank that day to let her know she had a secret admirer, Scott and Donna, virtual strangers at the time, had talked about everything under the moon for quite some time, so much so that Scott was taken aback. On Wednesday, January 6th, Donna made another call to Rod's house phone, this time at 7.11pm, a whole two hours before Rod even got off work in Peoria. Donna and Scott chatted for a good 35 minutes this time. It does seem rather odd, especially given she got off the phone with Scott and called up Rod at his work at Office Max in Peoria, only to talk to him for one minute. Donna spent the weekend at Rod and Scott's. On Sunday the 10th, Justine saw the baby Jesus, and Donna called Rod's home just after Mass let out, and they came over to have steaks with Rod and Scott, and Scott took photos of both Donna alone and Donna and Justine together. And a couple of days later, on Tuesday the 12th, before her death, during her lunch break at 11.35 a.m., while Rod was at his brother's doing laundry, Donna talked to Scott for eight more minutes. The point of all this, ladies and gentlemen, any assumption as to an affair between Rod's girlfriend Donna and his roommate Scott Roop, given Rod's stern proclamation to police that the two swore loyalty to one another, should be considered as a solid potential motive for Rod to commit murder. Again, love. Sex, jealousy, and revenge are all powerful and persistent motivations for killing. Now that we have sorted out those crumbs, let's let Rod be for now. But we must look back at any neglected evidence in the files. It is documented by Donna's co-worker at the Community Bank of Canton that back in 1985, she had traveled up to Wisconsin where she had gone to college to testify against someone in court. But why? And against whom? We could hypothesize, given Donna's experience with men in Canton, the probability of her attracting like men back in college who treated her the same way. Obsessive, controlling, stalking, and abusive, calling her up at all hours of the night to threaten her that God shall tell her she belongs to them and them alone. Only God knows. Is it possible? Certainly. Should it have been looked into deeper? Absolutely. Next, we should take a look at the fact that Donna was taking night classes at Spoon River College, pursuing her master's degree. We must ask, whom had she met there? Any cute guys? Anyone with whom she might have wanted to invite over for a drink? Perhaps the Canadian Mist and Coke? Anyone she may have turned the porch light on for? 
anyone who may have been a little too handsy that night, who may have forced themselves on Donna, anyone who may have gotten in over their heads, who may have split town after the fire or just blended back in with the college crowd. And what about Jeraco, a man from Chicago who was still in the picture with Donna when she married John? Donna had recently told friends that she should have stayed with Jeraco, who had a lot of money, instead of marrying John. Next we have Rick Lilly, a married businessman in town who was said to have dated Donna at some point, though Rick adamantly denied this, claiming that his wife was always present when he and Donna would dance. Take that for what you will, ladies and gentlemen. And next, Rick Clindenst, co-worker at the National Bank, whom Donna confided in often about her dealings with John, the tough times, the threats, physical and mental abuse, and not only had rumors about Ricky and Donna run rampant, but Ricky admitted he and Donna had driven around on the back roads, and he had written her love letters before her separation from John. Bruce White, potential one-time lover from the community bank. Kenny Owens, bank director of the community bank when Donna worked there in 1984, as a 24-year-old secretary to the bank's president. And once word got out, he had been dating Donna, taking the girl 30 years his junior for rides on his combine on the farm. Donna suddenly found his wife coming into the bank asking to meet Ken's latest conquest, and Donna found herself unemployed. Jim Morgan, a co-worker who once followed Donna to Kenny's house, blowing the cover on their romance back at the bank. But before we go on and name drop any more married men in Donna's inner circle, I feel it would be prudent to consider the girlfriends and wives, the women, just as likely to be motivated by jealousy. Sarah Haynes. How had she felt about the wildfire gossip that Donna and Dave were sleeping together? That they spent more hours a day together in the same room than he had her? We know Sarah was often mad at David, that he was always in the doghouse per se, for staying out too late, with whom she believed to be Donna. However, according to David, he never socialized with Donna outside of the bank before admitting that, okay, well, maybe I did. David had a key to Donna's, and was seen by the upstairs neighbors coming and going all the time from her apartment. David told the investigators that he didn't think he and Donna should be too close because they were both married, admitting Sarah was very jealous of Donna. Still, he then went around after her death saying that he was scared to death of John, afraid that he would kill him because he had been sleeping in Donna's bed. Essentially that he had been having an affair with the man's wife, and that he was glad she was dead. Knows how it was done, and who did it. While this branches the potential pass of the multiple male culprits once more, they do, however, diverge back on the possible motivation of a jealous wife. And what of Rochelle Hillmeyer? Rochelle stated in a conversation with us that she and Donna were staring daggers at one another at Barbecue Roundup as Donnie and Donna chatted it up. She told us that Donna was asking for it, and that she essentially deserved it. The statement verbatim. With all these guys stalking her, I can see how she led them on. It must have been an ego thing. I wasn't jealous, just observant. To say you were not jealous, Rochelle, but then to exclaim a matter of moments later, again verbatim, she asked for it, but I still feel bad for her baby. Does this not suggest you feel no empathy for the mother of a three-year-old who has been murdered and burnt to a crisp one week before her 31st birthday? Is this not a statement made and just fueled by the same jealous motivations that more often lead to murder than nearly any other causation, statistically speaking? When we tried to reach out to her again about these statements, she became rather paranoid and called the police department herself to inquire if any new evidence had surfaced that implicated her in this crime. 
I don't know how these statements make you feel, ladies and gentlemen, but they are enough for me to run Rochelle through the 30-question survey out of curiosity, if nothing else, to see where she might stand in relation to the others. The new roster from lowest to highest. 9. Rod Franciscovich. 11. John Tompkins. 12. David Haynes. 14. Terry Haynes. 15. Rochelle Hellmeyer. 18. Donald Bull. And you take that for what you will. Now let's consider another element of the scene of the crime. Location. We should also consider that Donna lived beside a pair of railroad tracks on the edge of an industrial area. In many respects, a prime murder location. Could a wanderer have wandered down those tracks and seen Donna in her nightgown through the window? A window cracked as she often had, as her radiator steamed out of control. Most likely not, but it is possible. Absolutely so. Also, who lived in the rundown apartments beside Bork's scrapyard, across from the factory, and just behind Donna's home? It was known to often been rented out to questionable characters from out of town, after all. Had the police taken a look? There's certainly nothing in the files suggesting so. And speaking of wanderers, convicted serial killer Arlie Ray Davis had been hunting central Illinois in a circumference around Peoria for quite some time by then. But had he been questioned by the police? Nothing in the files suggests anything of the like. But should they have? Absolutely so. It would have been foolish not to. There is literally an unbelievable amount of considerations to explore in this case. It is no wonder why investigators would be so tempted to toss the counterintuitive to the side, along with the obvious, and instead allow the devices of a good mystery novel to lead them astray. Which the deeper we dig into this, the sensation grows that the least likely one to know who the killer is, is the story itself. Now, let's go down another rabbit hole. One which sits in plain sight, but was seemingly never given much thought, because it just didn't seem probable. But it was never deducted as being impossible, therefore it deserves a brief consideration in the least. When Mr. Clayton App was interviewed by investigators, he advised that David and his family came to the house two weeks ago last Saturday. Power had been off all over town, and they stopped by to keep warm. They came back on at 11 p.m., but David did not leave until 1.30 a.m. David talked to him about the case. David told him that the police had questioned him when Mr. App asked if he knew he was a suspect. Then Mr. App said David told him his theory that Ron Tompkins was somehow involved and would save money over the years. Could David's bold statement made waiting in line at Kroger's that he knew how the fire started because he knew exactly who did it? Could that have been referring to Ron Tompkins? It was well documented that many people had mentioned that Ron and essentially the whole family were extremely concerned that the divorce could financially ruin the business, that John's mess was effectively bringing down the house of cards, and this made John's father Ron a very frustrated and increasingly desperate man who was none too happy at all with not only John, but his daughter-in-law, Donna. And it is even documented that quite a few people believed that Ron was more than willing enough of a character to be open to the idea of quashing the issue with a simple hit. There have been suggestions that Donnie was somehow connected to the Tompkins family. Regardless of whether any of this is true, there's one thing to consider, and that is that police didn't appear to look into this theory too seriously at all. Why? Well, names. The Tompkins name was once a very prominent one in the area. Bull, on the other hand, was a name to disassociate with, just as all of his friends had done the moment he was accused. 
But what happens when this sense of classism with all its black and white, cut and dry categorization, when those with the money and power reach out to those in a position to seek easy money, those with much less to lose, much more likely to take care of the dirty laundry of those with the bucks to pay? Hear me out for one minute, just for the sake of deductive responsibility, or rather, hear out this report. On 9-2093, at 15-40-hundred hours, responding officer met with Harold E. Smith and his attorney Hugh Toner at the Peoria County Jail. The purpose of the meeting was for the responding officer to discuss with Smith the details of the conversations he had with Donald Bull. The officer had previously been told by Toner that Harold Smith wished to discuss these matters with him. Smith stated that he was released from prison in November of 1991. Shortly thereafter, he began frequenting Brew and Q Tavern in Canton and met Donald Bull at that time. Smith stated he was introduced to Donald Bull by Harold Crozer. Smith stated a short time later he realized that Harold Crozer had told Donald Bull that Smith was a convicted murderer and had been hired to kill people. Smith stated that during September of 1992, Bull came to Smith and asked Smith if he would kill some bitch for him. Later in the month of September, same year, Bull asked Smith if he would kill her for $5,000. The responding officer asked Smith what he wanted in return for this information. Smith stated that he was being sentenced in federal court on September 21, 1993, and that he knew the responding officer could not help in the federal case, but Smith further stated that he had two drug charges in Fulton County, and if the officer would give him some help with that, it would be appreciated. When the officer asked Smith how much help he would be looking for, Smith replied, whatever you think the information is worth. The responding officer explained to Smith that he was worried about Smith's credibility and would require a polygraph examination of Smith to determine his truthfulness. Smith agreed to take a polygraph examination. However, ladies and gentlemen, this polygraph examination never took place. As incriminating as this report is for Donnie, if you take into account that in exchange, Smith received a great deal in return for his testimony from the state, and also, and this is a big one, that he had been guaranteed immunity for working with the state to convict Donnie. But now I have a theory to submit to you, ladies and gentlemen. Had the state settled for a guaranteed guilty verdict of one fall guy, let's say, out of a conspiracy of multiple individuals who may have been working together on this hit, but had chosen to work with the state? If so, it could have gone like this. At the top, According to David's theory, Ron is willing to fork over an amount of cash, which he sees as a worthwhile investment to save two things, the family business and the legacy of the business. In other words, the Tompkins had once had the most significant stake in fertile land in the region, and to toss in a third motive besides greed, revenge for dragging the Tompkins' name through the dirt. So let me try to clarify this a bit better. Miss Jill Churchill, a cousin of John's, on January 26, 1993, was one of the first to tip the investigators off that there may have been foul play involved. And this is coming from an arena far outside the playing field of the original suspect David. This is originating from the realm of the Tompkins dynasty, in which Donna had found herself entangled in the unraveling of said dynasty. John's marriage to Donna was an absolute mess, and in the last two years, the issues between Donna and John had begun to cause collateral damage to the family and the business. In response to John's berserk behavior toward Donna, his behavior towards his family was becoming erratic and severe as well. John had attacked his uncle violently, was having issues with his brother, and even threatened to kill his father Ron. 
The police were showing up more and more on the farm, so often that the family was considering deserting John, kicking John out of the operation. John's poor financial decisions to top things off were starting to affect the business as well, and his lifestyle choices, such as not only being caught having sexual relations with the sheep, but the damage that information was causing as it took a central role in the divorce proceedings. And the family was considering banning John from having any contact with the furry creatures. Donna was distraught that John had pressured her into signing a $100,000 note for a new hog confinement barn. As it turned out, this was a sour investment. And since John was too financially shot to help Donna with child support, responsibility was falling more and more on the shoulders of his family. John was losing control and the divorce was not going well at all. The family began to worry about how the fallout would affect the struggling business. There was also the custody fight over Justine, and seeing most felt that John really didn't want much to do with Justine, it was apparently more of a power struggle, an all-out war, and some believe John was at a mental breaking point that would have led to his willingness or even desire to hire someone to kill Donna and his daughter Justine. John's family pressures on him concerning how the divorce would affect the farm partnership were mounting, and his familiar relations were crumbling. He blamed both Donna for the failing business and the business for the failed marriage. The two had become at direct odds in the business and the marriage, in other words, money versus Donna, Donna versus money. He resented Donna, believing she thought that she was better than him, that she was an East Coast snob who didn't want to be the farmer's wife, that she was a woman of the 90s, a career woman who did not want to conform to life on the farm, the only life John had ever known. She had made it clear to John that she did not want any more children with him, and this was a real blow to not only the ego, but to his contribution to legacy. John told investigators that when Donna had threatened to leave him, he told her that he would let her do her own thing, but that she didn't seem happy with that. Parallel realities had clashed, and his possessiveness over Donna and Justine, whom he incessantly referred to in a dehumanizing manner, calling her my wife and Justine my baby, but never by their names. Even Sergeant Ayers found rather odd and suspicious. And John created an extreme disdain for her lack of perceived loyalty, refusing to cook for a man, to do housework, and to take care of the lawn, Instead, Donna wanted to further her education and get her master's degree, which further infuriated John because in his eyes, this was all an initiative to take power and control away from him, and dominion was precisely what John was after. Still, that authority was essentially falling through his fingers, minute by minute. So when his wife and daughter suddenly turned up dead, he immediately assumed, or at least claimed to assume, that there must be no other answer but suicide, which would mean she gave up and quit, and he won. She was a failure, and it was essentially her fault their daughter was dead. But as Ron told John that day, terrible thing has happened, and if you've ever had enough strength or self-control in your life, now was the time. That statement could have quickly been taken as demeaning, in between the lines suggesting you are too weak, you are powerless to clean up your own mess, so I had no choice but to step in and clean it up for you, because you are dragging us all down with you, the whole farm, the family name, the survival of Dynasty. Had Ron made a decision? Was it time to deflect the blame back onto Donna? Statements like, Donna had started drinking at the Elks, that she was not loyal, that she tarnished her marital love, the name of the family, and dignity. John suggested to investigators that what was not burnt up in flames was his. It was all his. He had given it all to her. All she had belonged to him. She was a failure after all, and she failed to pay her life insurance premium, 10,000 bucks down the chute. If it wasn't torched, it belongs to me. 
Could any of this possibly suggest that he knew his father was responsible? It might seem far-fetched. There is no way to know. And when John asked if they were still in the sleeping position, and that he hoped so, because the biggest positive would be that they never felt burning flesh or fight. So this is the question I am left with, ladies and gentlemen. We know flesh was burnt, but what a fight. How did John know there was a fight? And who had fought who? Whoever it was, if it had been a person sent on a hit to take her out before she could even hit the snooze button that day, when John said, I think carbon monoxide got them, was it insight or was it a slip? Why does he assume this? Deaths from a carbon monoxide poisoning occur in the United States on an average of 430 deaths per year. Over 5,000 people in a given 10-year period. Might carbon monoxide be a discreet way to kill? It is used for suicide all the time. After all, just a couple weeks earlier, Terry Haynes had attempted to use this method to take his own life. So could it not be used to take another's life? And as the jury claimed that Donna was obviously sexually assaulted because she was lying at the end of the bed, is it not also reasonable to consider that with her last breath of consciousness, that she attempted to rise from bed to see what was the matter with the air, that of which she smelled and somewhat sensed, that possibly she failed to actually make it off the end of the bed before collapsing and passing away? Now this leads us to the next question. If someone had been hired, who might it have been? Donnie Bull had a particular reputation in town, and regardless of how accurate it was, I can see him as someone whose name might be offered in a hush in seeking someone willing to take out a woman. This is now when we circle back to Smith's account of things. If we untwist the prosecutorial bend and look at it from the opposite angle, it is the confession of a man who has been granted immunity. Where there is smoke, there is fire. Might Donnie have been offered a job he chose to pass along, possibly to Crozer? Possibly to Smith, a man who was known to have taken people out for money in the past. In a town of 15,000, you only have so many options. And to save the farm, many wicked acts have been committed over the centuries. And possibly, just possibly, Smith or Crozer ran some carbon monoxide into the house. Or maybe initiated a gas leak. Just as David's first thought that day was maybe there was a gas leak, could this possibly have been an intentional one? As unlikely as it may seem, crazy shit happens all the time. Murders committed all around us all the time. And how do we know that? Because we are human beings on planet Earth, and we are fans of true crime. Motive takes a dark path with wicked results. But the irony is that we often jump to those most wicked conclusions when tragedy occurs. For example, the rapid assumption that Dawn and Justine's lives were taken by the hands of a man, a man motivated by sin. But there are other killers lurking out there, culprits lacking any existential awareness. But even though gas is not necessarily a sentient being in itself, in certain cases it can take on the spirit of man, as a man is either the creator, maintainer, or enabler making an inanimate object, such as gas, such as a house, a tool. I submit to you ladies and gentlemen, house as killer. To begin with, let's take a look at the home at 365 South 1st Avenue. Pauline Newcomb once owned the house in which Donna lived in. However, the property had been in a trust administered through the National Bank of Canton. David Haynes was the trust officer who handled the property. Maintenance of the property was generally managed by David Haynes, as if a tenant had a problem, they would contact David. 
The bank handled the rent, and all Pauline paid was her telephone. All the income from the property went into the trust. Pauline had owned the building since 1944 and had lived in the house the entire time of ownership. Her late husband had resided in the house with her. Initially, the house, which had been built in the year 1900, was a single home, and then it eventually contained two apartments, and it was converted to a four-apartment building around the year 1950. David Haynes told Donna he had an apartment available. With the help of Scott Roop and Rod Franciscovich, Donna moved into the vacant apartment around Halloween of 1992, about two months after the death of Miss Fisher, who had lived there for several years. As property manager, David Haynes was unsure if Donna's apartment had a smoke detector at the time of the fire. David claimed that he had given a smoke detector to the occupants of the second floor apartments around five years ago. However, Clark Hogan stated to police that he in fact did not have a smoke detector in his apartment, although he had asked David for one numerous times in the last six to eight months. Harold Fisher, son of Miss Fisher, who had lived in the apartment before Donna, installed a new Duracell battery in the smoke detector above the door leading into the bathroom from the kitchen in June of 1992 while his mother was still alive. After her death, Harold had been moving his mother's property out of the apartment around September 1st, 1992, including the gas stove and other appliances. Still, he had left the smoke detector in place and even tried the smoke detector to make sure it was in working order, and it was. Harold told fire investigators that the apartment was always warm, and his mother often had to keep a window open even during the winter. He said there was loose plaster on the walls in the back bedroom from water damage that occurred in the tornado of 1975. There were cracks present in the living room plaster under the wallpaper. Harold stated that he did most of the minor repair work himself, as the bank seemed reluctant to spend any money on the property. The home had some roof work done the previous summer. Clark Hogan noticed that the boiler turned on and off a lot, and he could occasionally smell gas from the kitchen stove. When Donna moved into the apartment, she did not have any heat, and she had to ask David to call Luker Plumbing to come look at the boiler, and it was discovered there was a minor problem with the thermostat. The home was always sweltering, and even Donna had to open windows in the winter. Catherine Tabor stated that Donna once had someone look at her stove. Joanne Folk stated that Donna's oven did not work and was missing a control knob. Occasional babysitter for Justine, Carrie Schaefer, was aware that Donna's oven was not working correctly. Upstairs neighbor Jim Schlanigan heard loud popping sounds from the radiators the morning of the fire. Now ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for us to consider that other culprit. One more lacking of empathy or possessing any discrimination towards any potential victim. That culprit, indeed more sinister and deadly than any investigator on this case had apparently given credit for. 784 people die of unintentional injuries due to non-fire exposure to gas each year. Inhaling high concentrations can lead to asphyxia when the body is deprived of oxygen and death. We use methane gas in stoves, heaters, water heaters, and ovens. The risk of carbon monoxide poisoning from methane peaks during the winter as we heat our homes. Often houses aren't ventilated in the winter in order to retain that heat. And the more carbon monoxide present in the air, the less oxygen you can inhale, potentially killing you. At least 430 people in the United States die of carbon monoxide poisoning each year. And 50,000 people will visit the ER for accidental carbon monoxide poisoning annually. Unvented space heaters are most common source of carbon monoxide poisoning, but fumes are also produced by furnaces, stoves, kerosene heaters, and vehicles warmed up in garages. Additionally, gas leaks cause 4,200 home fires each year in the U.S., killing about 40 people annually. David had claimed the gas dial had been spinning and winding out of control, 
making excessive noise that morning of the fire. And we all know the meter man, that person charged with walking yard to yard, setting off all the dogs in the neighborhood, whose flash we see in our periphery pass by the side windows of the house, meter reader in hand, only to vanish as quickly as he had come. I read a brief report to you, reflecting the February 5th, 1993 interview with CIPS Superintendent Scott Hikes, head meter man himself, whom pursuant to this inquiry by Special Agent Kedzer, Superintendent Hikes advised that he examine the gas meter at the Tompkins residence. He said that the meter had several hands of which two, the half foot and the two foot, are used for determining if there is a gas leak. Hikes stated that the half foot and two foot hands would move noticeably if there was a gas leak. He advised that the other hands would not move if there was a gas leak. Hikes added that the half foot and two foot hands would spin quickly if any gas appliance in the house was on. Hikes advised that during a gas leak, this fast movement would not be unusual. Now I move on to a second theory. And again, ladies and gentlemen, this is solely a practice of hypothesis, and in no manner is it an accusation nor a charge or claim that anyone has actually done any of the illegal or wrong deeds we might consider. House as Deadly Weapon Yes, the house was old, had a broken stove and an unruly boiler. The list goes on. The lack of proper maintenance and a bank unwilling to pay for upkeep. House as deadly weapon. How? Open the gas valve in the night. Why? To kill with an invisible weapon. But again, I ask why. We have considered sex, jealousy, and revenge. But let's take yet another look at the almighty dollar bill. There was also mentioned by Donnie's son that he remembered at the time there was a lot of talk that, working at the bank, Donnie had somehow stumbled upon a Ponzi scheme, and with the risk that she might say something and bring the whole pyramid down, seeing how much money there was to lose, especially at the top. Was it truly that far-fetched of a theory? Especially if you consider how odd it was for not only David to show up at Donna's house that morning, but Bank Vice President Max Scott. How many of you out there expect your boss to provide such door-to-door service? when you are feeling under the weather. And how many of your bosses will automatically assume that just because you are an hour late, you are almost certainly dead? Envisioning this theory, I can't help but imagine that the hug and kiss between David and Donna that day in his office was not about taxes, but about how much she would make herself in the scheme if she kept her mouth shut. Seeing the divorce, Justine's growing expenses, her desperate desire for life advancement to appease her father, that a little bit of extra in the bank would not hurt at all. It might just make a woman throw her arms around David and give him a kiss for everyone to see. But also, maybe that big kiss was too much. Maybe the higher-ups at the bank grew nervous. Maybe word had gotten out that as a secretary to the trust officer, Donna had, in fact, stumbled upon the scheme. Perhaps a decision was made not to deal her in, but to deal her out. To snuff her out. Again, I asked that damn question. But who? Zooming out, rolling back to that pre-credit opening scene once more. I quote the Pulitzer Prize winner and American film critic Roger Ebert yet again. Who is the killer? The movie makes it painfully obvious early on, and then insists on boring us with repeated shots of another suspect. It's as if we know who the killer is, but the movie does not. So who was it the movie had made painfully obvious early on? David Haynes. And now deductive reasoning leads me to the next question. Why burning flesh? and another theory impatiently awaits. The theory 
of liability. If Donna and Justine had died as a result of a gas leak, death by house, who is it to be held accountable? And how does a family, a community, achieve any resemblance of closure without the showmanship of a lead detective throwing the scumbag away to rot on death row? If the only scumbag to blame is not so sensational, not so rotten, not so scapegoatable, but something we use to cook eggs in the morning, who was to be held accountable? And for the answer to that question, all one needs to do is ask, who is responsible for the maintenance of the house? And who had neglected to spit a dime on its proper upkeep? A smoke detector. Who was neglectful to the extent that those poor choices led to the death of mother and three-year-old daughter, David Haynes, and the National Bank of Canton? So again I ask, why did David and Max Scott suddenly feel so invested in Donna's disappearance that morning and arrive with such rapid resolve? In a word, accountability. An act of negligence that could lead to not only a manslaughter charge, but to the hefty price tag that might not only tarnish the name of the bank, much more than Donna working bartending shifts at the Elks, but a price tag that would have really gnawed at those higher-ups. But the bank had one advantage in the matter. The fact that it was... If not right up there at the top of the pyramid, it was the pyramid. And it had the power and a lot to lose. They say that nothing is more dangerous than a man with nothing to lose. But I beg to differ. What about a wealth-generating machine with everything to lose? Not for one, but for many. Entire lifestyles down the chute. As far as any known remedies go, what does any killer want to do, be the killing intentional or not, to destroy the evidence and cover up the crime? And what better person to be tasked with this resolve than the man in charge of said maintenance himself? He had mentioned to a few folks that he had actually seen their dead bodies sprawled out on the sofa bed when he entered that morning. David told Mr. App that he felt responsible on the night of the blackout because he told Donna the apartment was available. I asked this, ladies and gentlemen. What does this guilt over her actual home have to do with the murder? Does it not instead suggest House as killer? As you can see, I bounce back and forth between these two theories like a ping pong ball. But stick with me here. As David also stated that night, as he had by now time and time again, his brother's house and mom had caught fire the previous year. And by now, we all know when something is troubling David, it bounces around his head non-stop, just like that ping-pong ball. And it slips out repeatedly, almost like a Freudian slip, a manifestation of guilt, perhaps. So I submit to you, had David pulled that AC to vent the gas before the house exploded, ran to his camper shell, and tossed in that accelerant to destroy the evidence? Had he in fact kicked over a container of accelerant, as he had also claimed in the interview room, saying he may have accidentally done so as he took two steps inside? and before the police ever made any mention as to fuel being spilled just inside the door? If you recall, David's account was that he had broken out the glass in the front door, unlocked the deadbolt, and took two steps inside to see the bright red brilliant dome burning three to four feet off the floor a few feet away. Upon his interview with fire investigator Ted Anderson, this was considered a suspicious statement, as it had occurred to him to have been utterly impossible without David being amidst an explosive backdraft. A backdraft occurs when a fire has little or no ventilation and then suddenly is supplied with a huge supply of oxygen, resulting in said explosive draft toward the source of fresh air, Donna's front door. 
Anderson, along with other fire investigators, had initially concluded that the fire had been hot, fast, and intense, and had been ignited within minutes of the firefighter's arrival, which would be in direct opposition to his initial suspicion that David was lying. This theory, in actuality, would have been the only circumstance in which David could have actually made those two steps inside. The event of a backdraft would have required a smoldering fire, which had essentially eaten up its supply of oxygen. The state had created for itself a conundrum, which resulted in Anderson abandoning his original report to agree, essentially, that the fire had been a smoldering one. And this was most likely a result of their absolute need to bend the timeline to make it possible for Donnie Bull to have actually been able to have been physically present to start the fire. But in bending this timeline, the state is simultaneously suggesting that David's account of events, plain and simple, did not have happened. Now, the result of this new theory works in two ways, as it both reasserts both Donnie and David's culpability. However, it does so with Donnie intentionally, and with David as a sort of unintentional byproduct, which they possibly hoped no one would question too much. Luckily for the state, the judge had basically prevented the defense from questioning David about the series of events that had unfolded that morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, to help sort things out a bit, I know this is all a bit complicated. Let me read from the court transcripts of Francis Patrick Burns' testimony. Can you spell your last name for the court? Francis Patrick Burns. B-U-R-N-S. And where do you reside, sir? In the city of Chicago. And what is your present occupation, please? I am the commander of the Office of Fire Investigation on the Chicago Fire Department in the city of Chicago. And how long have you had that position, sir? I have been the commander since 1989. And is it true that you were a consultant in the movie Backdraft? Yes, I was welded to the hip with Robert De Niro for six weeks, trying to teach him the things that we look for when we conduct investigations to make the movie as accurate as possible. Now, Robert De Niro's position in that movie, what is it? He played my position as the commanding fire marshal. Sir, have you had the chance to review the reports and other documents concerning the fire from January 13, 1993? Yes, I have. Okay, sir. Based upon your review of the reports and information provided to you, do you have an opinion as to where this fire started? Yes, I do. And that would be? On the bed, on the victims, and at the nearest point of exit so that the arsonists would not get caught up in the fire. Sir, can you describe for us? Please, what a smoldering fire is. How do you define it? There are generally four stages that fires develop in. Well, as the fire consumes the oxygen in the air, you then reach what is called stage three of the fire, and that's when the oxygen is depleted. It is oxygen starved. And we all know from when we went to school that you have to have three elements to have a fire. You have to have heat, you have to have fuel, and you have to have oxygen. You release any one of those three or hold back any one of those three, you're not gonna have a fire. It is pure and simple. These are givens. So when you have this smoldering stage, the fire is depleted of oxygen. You still have this tremendous heat. The heat is there and the fuel is there. But what you don't have is that third element to keep the fire going. Now, if you reintroduce oxygen into this fire, you're gonna have a low level overpressure or what we call a backdraft, okay? You're gonna have this. No matter if you open a door or if you open a window, once you introduce air into this oxygen starved or smoldering fire, you're going to have what we term the fourth stage, open free fire. Now you have enough air. You have heat and you have enough fuel. You're going to have a lot of fire. Sir, in this case that you have had a chance to review here, have you found any evidence of a smoldering fire? 
No. Generally speaking, when from the review of the reports that I see, when you have a smoldering type of fire, you generally have certain conditions that are met, such as one of the conditions, and probably the biggest condition, would be smoke and unburned carbon deposits settling on walls, settling on any metal or glass, windows, mirrors, things like that. If these windows and mirrors are clear, and they are in what you would determine to be an area of origin, you know that you have a fast and hot burning fire. All fires produce smoke. All fires produce unburned carbon deposits. And that is all smoke is. And these are attracted to cold surfaces like magnets. They draw the smoke, and it sticks right to it. Now you could wipe that smoke or that soot off in most fires, but if you have a smoldering fire, you can't do that. The stuff bakes onto the surfaces and becomes almost like tar. You have to use a scraper or a razor, or perhaps a very sharp chisel to get this stuff off. Sir, have you had an opportunity to review the reports alleging or stating that an individual took an air conditioner out of a window? Yes, that was Anderson's report, as I recall. What effect would that have on A, either a smoldering fire, or B, a fire just getting started. If it was a fire just being started, it would propagate the spread of the fire because the fire has enough oxygen in there, and it is in the incipient stage where it hasn't consumed all the oxygen. But in a smoldering type fire, if you remove that window air conditioning unit out, and depending on the size of the window, of course, and opening that large with a rush of air, you're going to have a backdraft effect. With that inrush of air, you're going to have a backdraft. You're going to have a low-level explosion. You're going to feel some force emanating from within that building through that opening. Sir, was there any evidence of any backdraft in that fire on January 13, 1993? Not naming the materials I covered. Briefly going back to talk about the glass. I think you stated that there was no baked-on smoke residue that you had observed as far as the pieces of glass. Is that correct? There was some glass that were found in the foyer of the area of the entranceway. Some were clear, and that I believe from reviewing the reports, these were determined to either be broken prior to the fire, or these were shards that were found in the bottom of the debris. Either a window that was broken prior to the fire, or in the very early stages. And this would be true because it was covered with other debris. And there was also some smoke-stained glass that was found in the debris that I believe Anderson said that you could wipe the smoke off. And that would be true with any normal fire. You would be able to do that. Okay, sir. Based upon your experience, education, and training, how would you describe the fire that you have been asked to look at? I would describe this fire as an intense, hot fire, a fast-traveling type of fire. I would certainly not call it a smoldering fire at all. And again, sir, based on your experience, education, and training, what is your opinion as to the point of origin? I believe that there is one large point of origin, but the point of ignition, I believe, was in the area as first indicated in the reports. I would venture the opinion that it was at the area of exit or entrance, the area where the front hallway or the front entrance where the door was, where somebody would ignite that and get right out of the house so they wouldn't be involved or trapped within the building. And would you tend to agree that the normal material on the couch and pillows and furnishings inside today's apartments have a lot of petroleum-based material to be made out of? If they are foam-based, yes. If they are foam mattresses and foam pillows, yes. Now, if there had been a smoldering fire and the air conditioner had been removed, would there be more than just smoke coming out? I would say there would be an overpressure. There would be a force of air coming out of there. That would be noticeable. Not just like somebody turning on a fan. It wouldn't be something that would from the window for two or three minutes. It would be just a short bam or a woof. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, what we are left with concerning David are two possibilities. 
One was that David had, in fact, started the fire at the originally estimated time of ignition, between 9.15 and 9.30 a.m. Secondly, that David essentially lied about taking those two steps inside, and if so, we have yet another question. Why? As to why David would lie about something so unimportant, in turn incriminating himself, who the hell knows why? However, as to why David would have started the fire, we could speak about this for hours, days, weeks, another year, and 69 more episodes. We could dig into the evidence that these pieces of clear glass that suggested a fast, hot, burning fire proved that a forced entry had occurred to the evidentiary potential that further implicate that David could have forced entry through the window before the fire had started to soak the bed and the victims in gasoline before leading a trail of gasoline to the door where he had exited and that the glowing dome he saw, which he suggested may have been a chair, could have been a result of the match that he struck within minutes of the arrival of the fire department. But again, what's the motive? Possibly a panicked response due to his fear of accountability as a neglectful property manager. Or again, a motive that comes down to one word. Pyramid. And yes, we are revisiting the pyramid scheme, the Ponzi scheme, the form of fraud in which the belief in the success of a non-existence enterprise is fostered by the payment of quick returns to the first investors for money invested by later investors. The classic Ponzi scheme is built on treachery and lies and nothing more. And Canton has a history of trickle-down economic schemes. Even in a town of 15,000, in a scheme where the recruitment rewards trickle up the pyramid several levels, which really incentivizes representatives to go out and bring more fresh meat into the fold because it dangles the dream of passive income in front of them, it would be difficult to recruit enough people, who recruit enough people, and recruit enough people and so on, that eventually you may get rich. But the reality is for most. The richness never arrives, and the people do run out or the police catch word of the scam, and it all comes tumbling down. And who falls the furthest but that 1%? David had told Mr. App the night of the blackout that the employees of the bank were fed up with investigators snooping around the bank, trying to uncover any evidence that may prove there was embezzling or some type of fraud going on, and Donna's death was a result. How to ignite a room full of gas. A spark. How would a trained Vietnam vet rig up such an explosive dischargeable spark? A booby trap, most likely. It's called guerrilla warfare. It had not only won the Revolutionary War, but by the 1970s had become a staple of warfare for the U.S. military. And what booby trap had David mentioned he may have set off by calling Donna's house that morning? The answering machine, remember ladies and gentlemen? That slow, distorted, melting machine, which he also attempted to claim, proved that the fire was already in action by 9 a.m. before he showed up on scene. However, we have one problem with this theory, and that is the fact that natural gas explodes. So, had the booby trap failed? Had David anticipated when he arrived to see nothing but a crater left at 365 South First Avenue? And once again, we circle back around to carbon monoxide and a cold winter storm in the middle of the night. And now is the ideal time to consider not only consequences, but probability. The testimony of Nancy Jones, called as a witness for the defense, having been duly sworn, testified as follows. Okay, now let's talk about carbon monoxide. Is it actually called carbon hemoglobin, right? No, carbon hemoglobin and carbon monoxide are two different things. 
Okay, but the levels that you talked about. You said you found some variance because it was from the left instead of the right, and the 6-9% to the 7-10%. to Do you remember that? Yes, I do remember that. Now, didn't you tell us that the percentages gave you some problems because... Because why? Well, the percentages didn't give me any problems at all, since there is other evidence here that Donald Tompkins probably did inhale hot air and gases during the fire because of everything that I have had at the autopsy. But the fact that the carboxyhemoglobin, or the percentage saturation, of her hemoglobin with carbon monoxide on the right side of the heart before it enters the lungs is lower than that which is on the left side of the heart after it comes from the lungs and indicates to me that somewhere between the right side and the left side she picked up 3% saturation of carbon monoxide. The only place that could have happened was in the lungs, and the only way carbon monoxide could have gotten there would have had to have been for her to have inhaled that. Are you aware of a percentage level of carbohemoglycobin that you should find in a person, an adult, who dies in a fire? Um, there is no percentage that one should find. There are commonly found percentages or saturations where one is going to attribute the death as being due to inhalation of carbon monoxide. Many people die in fires purely on the basis of the inhalation of hot air and the hot gases, where they do not have elevated carbon monoxide levels, where the carbon monoxide levels may even be zero. Were you told that Donna Tompkins was a smoker? I'm aware that she was, yes. Okay, don't you find that the percentage of the 6-9% in that area is significantly under the 50-60% to that you expect to find in a person who died in a fire? Again, counselor, you are changing my words. You're using the 60-90 is what one finds in fires. I don't always find 60 to 90. I have done autopsies on individuals who died in fires whose carbon monoxide levels are 20, 25. It does not have to be in the 60, 65 to 80 range for an individual to die. I didn't use 80. I said 50 to 60. You are telling me, but 50 to 60 is what I said. That is not what you find in all the cases where an individual has died from carbon monoxide intoxication, counselor. What about small children? Wouldn't you find normally a person, a small child, who died as a result of fires to have the percentage up in the area of 90%? Again, you can have those percentages where the death is due to carbon monoxide intoxication. It is possible to die from a fire from inhalation injuries where your carbon monoxide level is very low or zero. You may literally die from being burned and have no carbon monoxide at all. Doctor, do you remember we discussed on the telephone the other day about this and you talked about inhalation of superheated air? Yes. As a matter of fact, didn't you use the term flash fire? Yes. Didn't you say that in your opinion, that what you saw could be consistent with having died in a flash fire? Yes. Yes, it would be consistent with dying in a flash fire. Some reason you didn't use that term here today. I just didn't use the term flash fire. I can use the flash fire now. So now you think they died in a flash fire. I'm saying, when you asked me about that, I said these injuries are consistent with dying in a flash fire. I am not the arson expert here. I am not saying what kind of fire this was. Since you are not the arson expert, you sure don't know if they died as a result of inhalation of superheated air. I do know that the autopsy findings are consistent with both of them dying from inhalation of superheated air, counselor. Now, the five swabs that were taken from Donna Tompkins, there was nasal, tracheal, mouth, rectal, and vaginal. Yes. So you reviewed the reports and autopsy photos, and it is your professional opinion that Donna and Justine were alive when the fire started. The autopsy findings are consistent with them being alive at the time the fire started, yes. And would you disagree with Dr. Murphy, who actually did the autopsies, where he found numerous indicators, including the lack of any soot whatsoever in the trachea, that his opinion was exactly the opposite? 
Well, actually, lack of soot in the trachea is not an indication that an individual is dead at the time of the fire. Anyone who's familiar with the forensic literature knows that it is not an indication that an individual was dead. What is the, what is the significance of the fact that there was no soot in the trachea? Well, actually, the significance of no soot being found in the trachea is an indication that they died very rapidly when compared with everything else that one has here. Dr. Murphy is a very observant pathologist. He says he did not find soot. That is fine. I have no argument with Dr. Murphy not finding soot. But Dr. Murphy, in his observations, said there's edema and reddening of the mucosa of the trachea, which indicates that there has been some irritation there, and that irritation and the edema is consistent with inhaling very hot air and dying very quickly from it. In his examination of Donna, he describes not so much. He does not describe the tracheal loom very much. He just says he took a picture of it but he actually describes the mucosal surface of the airways within the lung as being edematous. These are findings consistent with injuries due to hot air. These are not findings that are consistent with a smothering or suffocation or death occurring prior to a fire. These are indications of death due to fire. Let me ask you this another way. If the two parties had been dead before the fire started, there wouldn't be any soot in their trachea, would there? And hypothetical? No, no, I'm asking you this. I am clarifying what you were saying in a hypothetical where individuals are dead and a fire breaks out. No, you would not find soot in their trachea. How about in a real situation, not just hypothetical? That is because they can't breathe in, because they are dead, right? That's right, counselor. So there wouldn't be any soot if they were dead before the fire started? That's correct. And this edema that you were talking about, which you say you observed, couldn't that be caused by struggling to stay alive while you're being murdered? No, it does not. It is an indication that there had been an irritation, a direct irritation to the lining of the trachea and the mucosa that does not occur from suffocation. In individuals who are suffocated, the lining of the trachea and the lining of the airways is perfectly smooth. It is intact. It is not edematous or reddened. So you disagree with Dr. Murphy, who did the autopsy, who observed all of these things, who observed the condition of the bodies, actually removed the organs, did the virtuous humor, did all of those tests and found the absence of disease, the absence of any other type of trauma, the absence of bullets, knives, anything else. That you're stating here professional opinion that Dr. Murphy is all wet that they were dead before the fire. Dr. Murphy is making a mistake here, yes. He is missing some of the subtle findings of deaths due to the fire. He is relying solely on finding soot, and he is relying solely on the evaluation of laboratory tests. I am using what Dr. Murphy describes to make my opinion, and he clearly describes reddening and edema of the mucosal surface of the trachea and justine, and edema of the mucosal surface, and actually he talks about the cherry red appearance, the musculature, which is an indication. Cherry red is a term that is used to describe individuals who are dying from inhalation injuries and his descriptions of the numerous autopsies that he has conducted and the forensic pathology that he has been involved in over the years is because it is different than yours and he is wrong and you're right? About his determination of cause of death, he is wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, it is exceptionally unbelievable to me to believe anyone would be willing to risk the lives of the occupants of four apartments. And practically nothing during the trial had been mentioned about this. Yes, the 123-year-old house still stands at 365 South First, but that is only thanks to the fast and experienced efforts of the Canton Fire Department and Coopers Creek. And the only thing more unbelievable than exterminating a house full of grown adults 
is the single killing of a three-year-old child, a child named Justine. And with a simple dream, this project, the narrative of a double homicide, came to light. I had been sitting on the wooden steps of a creaky porch of an old Victorian home, which sat in a lot beside a pair of old rusty tracks. A series of dilapidated brick warehouse buildings was on the other side of the tracks. As I looked out over the late summer lawn, waiting for someone or something to transpire beneath the vast blue skies, uncertainty became a little girl, playing joyously amongst the dandelions without a care in the world. Innocence radiated from her joyous grin as she grasped onto the dandelions now gone to seed, just as her face changed form to sudden concern as an old pickup truck pulled into the driveway, from which exited two strange men. But with the innocence she bore in those eyes that projected out onto the world before her, she turned her back on them, and with her tiny hand clutching a stem, she took a deep breath of oxygen, clean air, and she exhaled and freed those seeds to the wind which carried those dreams away, and that they, with any hope and a dose of grace, might blossom that virtue expressed in her name, a name bestowed by a mother to express the justness she wished her child to embody or to be. As in the case of Donna Tompkins who loved her Justine dearly and to such a degree, I am sure none of us would be unwilling to consider her dying wish, however unimaginable, the embodiment of justice carried on through the mention and remembrance of Justine's very name. Thus, as many people have, time and time again, asked me why I have chosen to dig up the past and why I would want to reopen old wounds. I submit to you, an unjustified wound cannot be reopened, as it had indeed never healed at all. And my mission for this podcast, my desire, and the goal of my team has been to call out that virtue name so that it might echo down those halls of justice to exactly where her soul should be, in hopes that her name, Justine, may live on. After all, what's in a name? That that which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. That the naming of things is irrelevant. This line Juliet reads when telling Romeo that a name is nothing but a name, a convention with no meaning behind it. With Shakespeare I disagree, and I am certain you must have invented such a line with no other intent but to display the naivety and the power love can have over wisdom and logic. As the truth is, names, just as words, have enormous power, syllables of vibration that not only echo out into the bounds of the universe, but also within to the depths of the heart and soul. Just ask the Tompkins, ask Haynes, ask Danner, ask Ayers, ask Bull. Names certainly matter, and to simplify, a name describes that which is a noun, an object, or a thing, such as a round peg or a square hole. And just like Romeo and Juliet's forbidden love, a name must fit a soul to suit one's fate, one's destiny, and only through death had this realization been made. So ladies and gentlemen, I feel it prudent to close with the words from Assistant Prosecutor Edward Parkinson's very own closing argument. But I was thinking earlier that John and Donna had a beautiful little girl, and they chose to name her Justine. I looked that up. I looked that word up. I looked that word up Justine, and I found what its meaning was. But even more than that, if you just change one letter in her name, you have justice. And although we didn't bring Donna and Justine back, and nothing I can do or the family can do, nothing the court can do, but the one thing that they deserve even in death, 
They do deserve this. They deserve something only you can give them, and that is justice. And ladies and gentlemen, I trust that you will do that. Thank you for all of your patience and please stay tuned for the last episode of our season finale, part three, Dear Donna. I'm Corey Zimmerman and this is Spoon River Gothic. Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.